Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hey, Glenn, welcome back. Like we talked about in the last episode, good to see you in San Diego. And uh, hope hope you're surviving the summer. I, I am, I am, I am. It's been a, a great summer. I, I've been out on the boat more and uh, have more boat stories. More boat stories, maybe, oh boy. Okay. Maybe for another another time, though. <laughs> but sure, sure. we got a lot to get through here today. I do tend to get uh, probably the most little texts and emails from people regarding apparently my my boat adventures <laughs> uh boy all right well let's uh, let's first mention uh, some new patrons that have uh you know joined us on patreon.com slash w podcast to help support us and thanks big thanks to jason david jack and christopher appreciate you guys helping us out and if anyone else wants to you know contribute uh, you can go to that website look us up uh you know throw a couple bucks our way we sure do appreciate it, and it helps us uh, get a booth at the II, and we're funding another uh, little adventure this year at the II conference, and have some uh, oh, new, new T-shirts, some really good ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you like last year's, oh boy, we got even. We'll have the popular ones from last year, but even more new ones that uh, I think will go over really well. Indeed. So, so I've got a little uh, where in the world for you, Eric. All right, here we go. All right, so if you're ready for this one, I, it's pretty easy, but I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, sure. First of all, the country's name comes from a tree. That's fact number one. I didn't know this. Okay. Uh, there are over 100,000 animal and plant species in this country. It's considered one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. Okay. In fact, and it's home to uh, some indigenous animals that can only be found in this country, the maned sloth, the three-banded armadillo, and the hoary fox. And that's H-O-A-R-Y, by the way. <laughs> the hoary fox. Not to, be, yep, yep, okay. not to be confused with any life choices. Right. Exports, <laughs> in fact, the number one export is iron ore. Number two is soybeans. Number three is crude oil. And they are actually the biggest exporter in the world of coffee. By the way, Eric, I, th when I was looking this up, I was very surprised. You know who the number two exporter of coffee is? Now, keep in mind, they're not the number two producer. This country is the number one producer and exporter. But the number two exporter in the world of coffee? Any idea? So usually for these kinds of questions, I either go with the U.S. because mm. it's it's you know it's kind of... It's always such an obvious choice that you kick yourself if you get it wrong by not saying U.S. Sure. Or something crazy like Iceland or Ireland or something like that. Well, they, don't, they don't actually yeah, grow your, it. Your but second they guess was a little closer. Uh, because I was confused, I thought, at first, but I realized not producer, exporter. Switzerland is the number two exporter in the <laughs> world of coffee. But then it, it makes sense because of uh, Nestle. And Nescafe right. is, you know, uh, sold... All around the world, any civilized country you go anywhere, their coffee choices, Nescafe. All right. Yeah. And then finally, the last clue, which is related to fingerprints, is it's home to a doctor with an interest in fingerprints who actually influenced Edmund Locard uh, when Edmund Locard was developing his tripartite rule. So, Eric, what country am I referring to? Okay. So, um, this is harder than... Um than uh, 
than you had uh, had promised me here, but I I'm gonna go with Australia on this one. Oh, huh. interesting. And if, if funny, one of my other clues uh, was it's it's number five in landmass as well. So it's the fifth largest country in the world, just be just behind the United States, which also suggests Australia, but it's not Australia. Yeah. Uh, Brazil, then? It is Brazil. It's Brazil, yes. Okay. It, the coffee I was back was, and forth between The coffee and two. the crude oil were kind of the, the biggest indicators yeah. for me. Yeah, I should have gone with, with Brazil. But, no, that was a good uh, good set. And, and definitely, you know, named after a tree. I mean, if any country is going to be named after a tree, I guess that makes <laughs> sense for Brazil. <laughs> they got plenty. They got lots, right? Uh, no, that was, uh, that was a good one, Glenn. Oh, good. Now, that little clip I threw there in at the end about the uh, about the fingerprint connection. So, yeah, uh, yeah this is this was a, a fun little thing. And the reason I actually had Brazil there was because I went to Brazil this spring and we never really talked about it. So I did want to give a shout out to the Brazilian listeners who surprised me that there were a few students in the class that were listening to the podcast and had you know, uh, listen to quite a few of them. Uh, but one of the things about the fingerprint, fingerprint connection was, for me, I wrote years ago, like back in 2005, when I wrote the chapter in the fingerprint source book that was published through NIJ, I had learned from Christophe Champo and from Pierre Margot in Switzerland uh, that there was this Brazil Locard connection. I had never known about this. Christoph, I think Christoph wrote about yeah. it and Pierre told me about it. And they had been trying to find this connection for years. But here's what I wrote in the source book. There was a reference to uh, basically uh, Locard arrived at his tripartite rule, the three-part rule, basically 12, you know, 12 minutia is sort of your goal, more than 12, it's beyond dispute for an identification, etc., his right. three-part rule. And, it, and Christoph had noted uh, that this was based on his own experience and observations based on the works of Galton, Baltazar, and a man named Ramos, Galdino Ramos. And Ramos hmm. uh, was from Rio. He was a doctor from Brazil. And apparently Locard had met him at a conference, like a science conference, that had some – that there was a paper being presented by Ramos on fingerprints. And I, my understanding was I think Ramos went to Europe to present it from Brazil. And so here's what I wrote in the source book. Uh, Locard referenced Ramos's work, stating that Ramos calculated that it would take – 4,660,337 centuries before two people were born with the same fingerprints. Locard, however, sharply disagreed with Ramos's calculations, stating that they were an error because Ramos used an incorrect number of minutia in the fingerprint as his basis for calculations. Locard did not state how Ramos computed his values, and thus it cannot be shown whether Ramos overestimated or underestimated his calculations. Hmm. That's like the only reference to this guy Ramos that Locard, you know, had this conversation with and had this influence from. And it was just basically kind of almost word of mouth from Locard, but no one could ever find the publication, etc. But this is where the story gets interesting for us as fingerprint examiners. When I was there, one of the students, he, he was such a sweet guy, so shout out to Gabriel Gomez. Uh, he was such 
a fingerprint nerd. He would fit in so much with our group, and he had listened to podcasts. And you know, I I mean, you know, obviously, yeah, Portuguese is his you know native language. Right, right. Uh, but you know, he does what he can to try to listen to our episodes in English, and uh, he's just such a sweet guy. But he had read this in a source book. And he had also read and um, had communications with Kristoff. And he went and tried to find this Ramos and found the works that had influenced effectively Locard and was able to actually find it. And now he's doing a translation from Portuguese to English and he's working on a, on a paper. So we might get a chance to read this very early work that influenced you know, one of the, the founding fathers, if you will, of, of fingerprint science. But it was this kind of cool connection. And so great to see someone so impassioned about fingerprints go on a deep dive looking in like oh, yeah. these crazy 100-year-old archives in you know National Archive Library to find the most obscure, minuscule <laughs> reference to fingerprints from someone who has, you know, not involved in the fingerprint field that happened to meet someone at a conference. I mean, well, how, how cool is that? I mean, bizarre. Yeah. Well, that's, that's amazing. I, I, I love those kinds of connections. And I mean, heck, we're coming up here on the, the IAI in, uh, in just a little bit where, you know, another year's worth of, of those connections. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, but I remember a couple years ago, um, meeting another Brazilian uh, fingerprint examiner uh, that uh, it was one of those situations where I think you, you know, sure how much you've uh, no, you're right. In fact, he was in the class and showed, oh, he was good. And, yep. And showed pictures of, of us <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> it was, but it was one of those things where, you know, we're just, I'm just walking down the hall talking to you or, you know, Carrie or somebody. And then all of a sudden, someone just kind of like their head starts moving around, and they look back at me and go, "Wait, are you?" Just because they heard my voice, and you know they they've heard it uh, on the podcast. Yes, and, uh, that's that's a that's a great experience, and and you know I love every time that happens. So that examiner came up to me in class, showed me pictures um, awesome. when we were at the conference, and apparently you had made me do a magic trick for him, and I I didn't I must have been <laughs> drunk. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember doing it, but. <laughs> But apparently he had a photo of me doing a magic trick. So awesome! <laughs> it was kind of kind of fun. Uh, I, I had um, uh, my own little kind of mini deep dive a few weeks ago. I was at the Texas Division IAI, uh, and you know, met uh, someone who was an, you know another listener to the podcast, uh, Pat Buzzini. Oh um, yeah, who is a graduate of Lausanne. Yes, and now teaches at uh, Sam Houston State, and um, so. We were chatting about APHIS stuff, and and um, and then that kind of evolved into the again, the tripartite rule. And uh, our conversation went a little different way. We I remember hearing that separate from the tripartite rule that Locard also had written something on the exclusion side because you know tripartite rule is very much mm-hmm. how much is it enough to ID, but doesn't really talk about exclusions at all. That's a good point. He pulls out his laptop and starts, you know, bringing up files of these, you know, old papers and books written in French, and and <laughs> it starts, you know, trying to help me find, you know, if this reference exists or. Uh, uh, anyway, we we kind of left it at that, uh, but uh, again, always great to to run into fellow fingerprint nerds and Indeed. and jump into some strange topic from the ancient past. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's cool. Yeah, Patrick's a great guy too. Uh, fellow fellow University of Lausanne student from Switzerland. Yes, he's uh, he's great. All right. 
Uh, today's episode is going to try to answer a question from a listener, and this is one of our lay listeners, but I thought it would actually be really helpful because it's, it's frankly a question that I get in the courtroom quite a bit. So I think we could probably address this for lay listeners and make it kind of interesting for the average person who might not know as much about forensics and just what they see on TV and in movies, but also practical for the fingerprint examiner or other practitioner who has to testify in the courtroom. So I got a text from an old friend of mine who listens to the podcast. So shout out to Daniel Bo Fletcher, and he goes by Bo. And before you even go any farther, Eric, I'm going to answer three questions for you very quickly. His father was not necessarily a fan of the Dukes of Hazard. He is not from the Deep South, and I did not meet him in prison. Just so you know, yes, I have a friend named Bo, and just, we'll just get those three things out of the way. So shout out to Bo. Uh, but Bo was listening to one of our other episodes. I know, I know. Hey, Bo. Uh, it was listening to one of our uh, previous episodes and just kind of shot a text to, and basically said, so which forensic discipline is the most reliable? You know, is it DNA or, you know, which, which one's the most reliable? And this is a question I get in, in court quite a bit, and it's usually DNA being pitted against fingerprints. In fact, one of the last times I testified in Washington, D.C., the very first cross question was, and this is exactly how the guy said it, Dr. Langenberg, wouldn't you agree that that DNA is more reliable than fingerprints? And I just kind of looked at him and said, no, not necessarily. And then he blustered and he kind of like, Are, is it your testimony to these esteemed jurors that fingerprints is more reliable than DNA? I said, no, that's not what I said either. And uh, no, I wouldn't agree with that characterization. I and I tried to expound a little bit more, and then he just kind of tried to keep me the yes or no answers. And he just kind of kept coming back, and I'm trying to say, no, I, I wouldn't agree with that. And in fact, in one study, as I was just trying to get this out there, he cut me off and wouldn't let me go any farther. And in fact, prosecution came around very nicely and said, you were trying to tell the jurors about a DNA study that might be helpful for them to understand fingerprints and DNA reliability. Would you like to you know, share that now with these jurors? And so uh, it's one of the studies we'll talk about as well, because I think that there is this perception from lay people, right, that... There are certain disciplines that are very, very accurate, and there are certain disciplines that are not so accurate, and there's this reliability. I mean, that, I run into this. I assume you've probably run into these kinds of things before, too, or you've been asked these questions, Eric, in courtroom? You know, I don't think I've been asked, or at least I can't recall a specific testimony where I was asked to kind of like compare the accuracy uh, of different fields. So not, not, that hmn't really okay. been a thing for me, but uh, have you ever been asked if fingerprints are more subjective compared to something objective like DNA? Uh, that's another question I'll get. Nope, I haven't got that one either. Wow. It's it, overall, I mean, uh, maybe it's just a different kind of you know set of courts to testify in, but uh, you know everything is very focused on the fingerprint side. Any questions of accuracy rarely kind of come up it, i usually find that it's me t you know at telling in the pretrial uh time frame telling the prosecutor hey you may want to ask me some questions about accuracy on direct so you know so that it just doesn't just come up just only in uh, in cross but um even then it's it's even not all the time 
don't know. Maybe we're just we're just running in a little bit different circles. Hmm. Uh, I'm surprised because I do get asked this question about the reliability in general, and they need something to compare it to. So it's almost always fingerprints aren't as good as DNA, right? That's that's the premise right. that they want to ask, and I'm like, well, that's not necessarily something I would agree with. And here's why, and it's usually the why part they start, you know, trying to cut me off or not let me give the full answer. So I, I thought we might take a little bit of a dive into that today and explain why I can't say that fingerprints are less reliable than DNA or DNA is more reliable or any discipline for that matter. It's a more complicated question than I think the layperson recognizes. So if listeners are interested, back in 2019, we had Gianni Ribeiro come on uh, and discuss one of her articles. And this was episode 196. And in the episode, she had published a paper in which she had surveyed a number of lay people. And she had ha- effectively asked them questions about reliability, how accurate. Yep. Although I keep we, we, there is a distinction between accuracy and reliability. Reliability means something very specific in science, but when I think lay people think about reliable, they tend to think about mm, how much can I trust this? And a one, one measurement of trust might be, well, how accurate is this? When an, when an expert says it's an identification, should I believe them or not? I think when the layperson thinks about reliability, that's really what they're trying to get at is, can I trust what they're saying? And accuracy yeah. is just one measure of, of that, but probably one of the better measures of it. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on why you're asking the question. Mm, but Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, in for just reference, in Gianni's paper... She had asked them, the lay, the lay person, about 16 different disciplines and basically ranked their assessment. And here's just some of the disciplines. They had ranked DNA the highest, and that's something that we've seen and had discussed in other episodes as well. DNA got the highest in her study, right around 90%. Often in some other studies and my own workings with lay people, we would typically find DNA a little higher than that, usually around 95% to 99% sure. on average. But on average, uh, they found that the layperson thought it was around 90% reliable. Then, surprisingly, the one right behind it at almost the same percentage was dental. And I think in that episode, we discussed, well, did they think dental records or did they mean forensic bite mark bite analysis, mark. which in my view, is quite different. It's sort of the equivalent of 10 prints, that's the dental records, versus latent prints, difficult latent prints, which is more like bite marks. And especially it gets more complicated with bite marks on skin. So that's something we'll probably come back to because bite marks has been in the news quite a bit lately. And then fingerprints came in around 88%, and then firearms around 80%, bloodstain patterns around 79%, they didn't have any footwear or shoe, but from my own experiences and other studies, usually shoe comes right around in the, the high 70s to 80s. Faces was around 74%. And then document examiners had the lowest response, forensic document examinations, which was around 65%. And I know we made lots of comments in that episode, but I'm just kind of reminding any listeners or if they hadn't listened to it, DNA almost always gets the highest fingerprints just usually right below that 
firearm mm-hmm. somewhere below that a little bit, and then the lowest tend to be uh, bloodstain pattern faces and documents. And I, I think we even talked about you know the the theory being. If the layperson thinks it's something that they can do, like faces and handwriting recognition, they tend yep. to give it a lower reliability. And if it's something beyond their understanding or capability, some mysterious thing, well, they assume a higher reliability. I think it's just human psychology. I think we talked about that, too. Does that all kind of fit with your recollection? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So these are layperson perceptions. So I think when my friend Bo was asking the question... You know, it was this idea, well, well, which one of these is more accurate? And the answer I try to explain in court is, well, it's not a very fair question because it depends on the data. It depends on the sample that you're looking at. And I usually, you know, turn to the jurors and say something like, I can imagine a very clear fingerprint with lots of features, almost no distortion, and requires very little interpretation from the expert. In fact, it could even be automated, and sometimes latent fingerprint examinations can be automated uh, using computer systems. Contrast that to a very complex, degraded DNA mixture with multiple contributors and degradation and low DNA amounts of DNA called low template, but... I don't say that for them. I just say low amounts of DNA. Contrast that, and in that instance, the fingerprint will typically be much more accurate and much more reliable than something like the mixture interpretation. And so here's an example where DNA is not as reliable as potentially the fingerprint information. And vice versa. You can have a very clear, you know, single or maybe very dominant DNA profile and a minor contributor profile that's very obvious to the DNA analyst. And no DNA analyst will make any errors on that sample compared to a very distorted, fragmentary bit of ridge detail that examiners can't agree on and potentially could have a higher error rate. And so it depends on the ambiguity of the data. It depends on... How clear is that information? And it depends on, you know, what methods the examiner is using, you know, to process that and ultimately, you know, what kind of conclusion they're attempting to offer. I mean, all these things make it more complex. And I think it's sometimes the phrase I'll use in court is myopic. It's just narrow vision and a disservice to some, to try to reduce some of these to, well, this is more reliable than that. Because it's not really fair because it's based on the data and the samples. I assume you would agree with this. Oh yeah, and it, it goes back to what question you're asking, right? If you're asking kind of a general question about the the average samples that come through an average lab, or are you talking about the specific sample you're dealing with, you know, right here, you know, that's under question in this court case? I, I like to equate it to to tests, right? So. You know, which is harder, a math test or a history test? <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends, right? That's are we, great. Are we talking? Are we talking addition, or are we talking differential equations? And are we talking like I don't know, like a like a third grade history of Thanksgiving, or are we talking like medieval castles in Lithuania, right? Like, what what's the test? What questions are, are am I being asked to answer? Because it it depends. It's it's. <laughs> I'm finding it's just the most common answer to virtually every question <laughs> in our field. Any it question, depends. any question that's meaningful and has complexity, the answer is it depends. No, you're right. That's right. Uh, that's a great life lesson. Yeah. So. 
to be fair, I mean, you know, we've discussed in other episodes, we've discussed error rates, which again is, is if we're kind of looking at things general, I think that has to be factored into it. Because mm, if yes. we were asked the question on average, you know, what kinds of forensic samples are the most incorrect and which ones tend to be the most correct, well, now we're moving towards, you know, accuracy, right? So if you're averaging a number of easy, hard, and medium level tests together and looking at a group of average examiners, you know, participating in your average kind of study, well, is there anything we can infer from that? So just from a perspective standpoint, I just thought, well, let's just quickly review some of the things we've talked about in the past, including a very recent episode about black box studies. And then I thought it would be nice to tie in a couple of new DNA papers that have come out and, again, just give listeners this perspective and go right back to what you just said. When it comes to DNA and fingerprints, it really depends. I mean, it depends on what we're talking about. And maybe that's what's missing is that level of nuance and complexity, uh, not just missing from uh, lay people's understanding, but from like CSI, from, you know, uh, you know, uh, n- new detective forensic files type shows. It, they tend to be really oversimplified for, I think, the consumer and right. maybe don't get into the real nuance of science. And that's that's probably the biggest issue is, as you say, it's it depends and life is a little more complex than what you see on TV. Oh, if only, if only, right? It could all just wrap up in 45 minutes, but uh, yeah. Okay, so we're, we'll swing back to this, but let's start with, you know, what generally lay people consider the lowest, right? The lowest reliability of the of these when ranked according to Johnny's paper, and that's handwriting, which I think hmm. sometimes gets such a disservice because they've been doing error rate studies longer than any other forensic discipline, really, and they've <laughs> yep. got... Uh, they probably now, if not as many as fingerprints, then probably the second most number of studies. And they were early money on we should be doing error rate studies. And thanks to groups like Brian Found in Australia and Moshi Kam, uh, who's a university professor here in the U.S., there have been a number of, of studies on this. Linton Muhammad is another one. Uh, but... In a handwriting black box done by Austin Hicklin from Noblis and the Noblis group that we've talked about numerous times in the fingerprint studies in 2022, they had a false positive error rate of around 3%. It was 3.1%. That was their false positive error rate, which means when the samples were from different authors, handwriting analysts said it was an identification 3% of the time. Now, they had other conclusions they could render such as well it could be this person it might be this person but i'm i'm just looking at the times they said it's a match it's an identification three percent of the time which is you know far cry from what they were saying in gianni's study which they only put around 65 percent reliability i mean there's a huge disconnect between that yeah and one thing just to point out here from this uh handwriting study that i'll later link to when we get into the new dna paper is just the um, reproducibility uh, and overall 68% of the conclusions in this handwriting study were repeated exactly. Uh, 92% within plus or minus one category because that's just the way handwriting conclusions work because there's like multiple categories. So anyway, just as a, as we start comparing these different uh, disciplines, 
you just want to kind of have a number that we can maybe reference to to use as a kind of a, an, a benchmark or ideas to like you know what it looks like across uh, these different fields. Right, and you're bringing up a, a really good point. Is that you know I said that when lay people think about reliability, what do they really mean by that? You know, one way we might look at that is accuracy. You know, did they get the right answer? But another way that lay people might assess the value of evidence is, well, do examiners tend to agree on the same conclusion? They might consider something to have a lower value if lots of examiners looking at the same sample are disagreeing or interpret yeah. that information differently, which doesn't mean necessarily that it's wrong or inaccurate, but that variability in interpretation may really make lay people go, well, how much weight to really put on this if they can't agree on it? I, I, that's a really fair point. And, and again, just another aspect of the hell does a layperson think when they, when they hear the word reliability? So then, you know, one of the uh, other ones is, uh, one of the other lower ones is facial, which was, you know, they assessed at 74%. I don't have a face black box study in front of me, and I know I'm throwing this to you on the spot, but do you re recall from dealings with uh, face face stuff you had more you had more of a foot in that world? Do you have a number that comes to mind of approximately where their accuracy was? No, I, I'm not sure that if there's a study that fully over, overlaps with what we're talking about here. Okay, I'll, I'll look something up. I'll try to look something up. Um, and again, I. I, I mean, I took a 40-hour class and and then obviously kind of deal with it, um, you know, interact with it to a degree with my, my new job, but, you know, not, not fully, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, neck deep or anything into that field yet. Okay. All right. I just, my recollection was that it wasn't, you know, 26% of the time they were getting it wrong. I mean, that... No. That was much lower than that. Uh, but one thing... It, to consider about faces again it, going back to this it depends it depends on what what you're trying to do right are we talking about a human examiner comparing a mm. an unknown face from a photo uh, or a video to a uh, a mugshot or comparing two you know faces from different video sources or the machine comparing someone standing in front of the uh, like the passport booth you know, to the picture on their passport, uh, or or just comparing two mugshots against each other. Sure. Uh, and the machine doing it versus the human, the you know every one of these different scenarios is going to have wildly different uh, levels of accuracy, and uh, obviously the better the data is, then the higher it's going to be. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, again, it fits with what we're talking about. Again, it exactly. kind of depends. Okay. Well. While Gianni's paper didn't uh, have them assess the level of footwear or shoe print examinations, that tends to be a little on the lower in the 70s from other papers and sources as well. But again, surprisingly, from the FBI Noblest Black Box study that looked at footwear comparisons, they only had a 0.2% false positive error rate. I mean, that is really, really low. That's when they said it was an identification. Now... In that field, they tend to not say identification as much as maybe some of the other disciplines. They tend to use high degree of association or something mm -hmm. just short of that on more of a five-point or six-point scale. And that was a 1.4% false association. It was not a false positive error, but 
They got it wrong 1.4% of the time. They said high association, that they're from the same source, when in fact they were from different sources. But still, I mean, you're looking at a very, very low percentage of time that they actually say it's an identification and it's incorrect. Now, firearms and tool marks, which also tends to be a little lower, we don't quite have the black box data yet for firearms, and this is going to set up quite nicely for uh, some episodes coming up where we're going to be <laughs> yes. looking at some firearms issues, and firearms error rates are under, we'll say, debate right now, and there's a big challenge to the firearms uh, reliability in the courtroom right now. But from the 2021 Busey study that looked at tool marks, you know, they had a 0.7% false positive error rate when they said it was an identification and it turned out ground truth. The tool marks were from different, the, the tool did not make that tool mark. And that was less than 1% of the time as well. So again, at least from that one study, very accurate in that instance. And now we're moving into the realm of fingerprints, which, you know, we've talked ad nauseum in other episodes, but, you know, our, I assume your favorite stat and one of my favorite stats is just from the similar FBI black box noblest study from 2011, which is approximately 1 in 700 or 0.15% false positive error rate, which, you know, is really, really low. Fingerprint examiners just don't make a lot of erroneous identifications. And yet, again, from what lay people say, it tends, they tend to you know, have fingerprints higher on the scale, but still much lower than probably the actual accuracy is. And that is an average across you know, um, all different quality levels, uh, size of the latent sure. processing techniques. You know, it, it's a a rough average, and then in general, if the latent print that you're looking at in this particular case is better than average, then you can assume a lower error rate in you know in general. Or the uh, the opposite, if it's if it's a lower quality latent than average. Right. And then one of the more surprising ones, and again from other studies and and other sources is usually bite marks is usually fairly high that and this just continues to surprise me because now yeah. i mean this field is i mean this field is in the news there's huge controversy in forensic science and some of the big names in forensic science are basically saying this should never come in the courtroom and we should be done with this. This just should never be entered as evidence. And I think you and I have talked about it somewhere before in the past. But again, to me, like all, like everything else we've been talking about, is well, it really depends on the sample and the data. Because with bite marks, the biggest issue is are, are the teeth discriminating enough you know are do they are they quote unquote unique enough from person to person but you know do they really discriminate enough in modern times with modern dental and orthodontics you know i people get teeth corrected pretty quickly so i don't know you see the same kind of variation in a first world country that you would have even 50 60 years ago and obviously, the second thing being is that skin is a terrible recording medium. There's a great study from Peter and Mary Bush uh, that showed just how variable the same dentition can be on skin, and if the skin is flexing or moving or the amount of pressure, and that the same dentition can appear drastically different on multiple bites 
just because skin is such a horrible, horrible recording medium. But if you had in the case of Ted Bundy, where he had this rather unusual dentition and this rather unusual snaggletooth, and he's biting into food or cheese or a good recording medium, something you know like a hard cheese that would record even the striations of the teeth and things like that, and the little chips and contours, well, then we're talking about a very different sample than we are in, you know, a, a bite mark on skin where the person was moving around and yeah, under completely different conditions. And I could imagine that under those very limited circumstances, that evidence could have some value. But unfortunately, this whole field is just problematic with personalities and fighting and drama that sometimes comes when a, a field feel, feels that they're being attacked and so everyone's very defensive and unfortunately they're not really taking it the kind of introspective look they need to see how good is bite mark evidence how reliable how accurate reproducible etc yeah i mean I, I think also part of it is just if there is that limited uh, use case under ideal circumstances even in that situation still presenting the evidence with appropriate caveats that that really you know, accurately represent the strength of that evidence you mentioned the uh, uh, you know snaggletooth in relation to ted bundy but you know that that term is more usually applied to the the bad ID out here in Phoenix, where the quote unquote snaggletooth killer mm. uh, was convicted back in the '90s and then exonerated after DNA evidence showed that, that he he didn't kill that lady. Right? It was all the evidence was um, he would play darts in the bar that she worked at, and uh, this bite mark evidence. That was basically it. Yeah. So you know, even with weird messed up teeth that you know there's they're still getting it wrong and at at best overstating the evidence and it just yeah i think we talked about this separately a little bit ago i'm just floored that this is all still part of aafs right aaf being the american academy of forensic science one of the premier organizations of forensic science in the united states but you know with international reputation it's still a discipline there and then those that are members of the academy are fighting to to keep this as a science and defending it and saying no you know these studies are over exaggerated they aren't fair you know this is inappropriate they are personally attacking mary and peter bush who have been just good scientists using statistics and data and various studies to kind of show hey you know there are limitations to this science but as you point out they they don't really want to recognize those limits of their own science and that yeah. that's the problem and then you then factor in personalities <laughs> probably money and their livelihood and these things that they feel are being threatened and possibly at stake it's it's almost like they just the whole organization needs to um step back look at the data and move forward but uh, anyway i'm not a member so you know what do i care <laughs> good point what I mean, again, I think what is so surprising to me is that the public, I mean, again, from Gianni's paper, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe if we did a survey today, maybe that number would change a bit. And again, from her paper, she did use the word dental. And I think lay people think of dental records, which I wouldn't have an issue with. Like, no, think, that's, that's great. You know, that, that's totally different scenario here. But they do tend to put bite mark evidence as relatively high. And it, it's surprising to me that they're not getting the message. 
There have been a series of publications from Radley Balco of the Washington Post, who's been publishing on bite marks. So if any listener wants to do a deep dive on bite mark evidence and probably the like the one source of media who's been really a watchdog on this issue and going after it for almost 10 years now that would be radley balco from washington post just search that in bite marks and you'll find a plethora of articles just detailing the drama of the american academy the attacks on peter and mary bush and their research and it's just been just all that nonsense so anyway uh, check it out if you're interested in going down that rabbit hole. And that uh, brings us to the top, the king at the top, the most reliable, the one that is the gold standard of all forensic science, Eric. That's uh, DNA. Dana, yes. And uh, we got a new paper on it that was, man, I, I guess I understand that this isn't a series of other papers, but I can't wait to read the, <laughs> the next one because this one is, I think, really eye-opening. So to put this in perspective... Oh boy. <laughs> Very quickly. Uh, during the 2009 NAS report, the NAS report basically said DNA is the gold standard. They've already gone through this process. We don't really need to criticize them. We're going to criticize everyone else because, well, frankly, they got their ass together. In 2016, in the PCAST report, PCAST said, yeah, hold up here. You know, not exactly. DNA is really good when it comes to single source profiles and what you have when you have a, a two person mixture where, for example, in a typical sexual assault, you might have a major contributor, the victim usually donating the most DNA to the sample and then a mix of the perpetrator. And usually the major contributor will have more DNA contributing to this, and the minor contributor will typically have less DNA. And that's just all, again, very generic, and that's not always the case, but often is. And they do quite well when you have these, what we'll call very clear, unambiguous, easily uh, either separatable samples, they can deconvolute them very easily, or you've got just a single source profile. And they do very well with that. It's very accurate. Where DNA has been having major issues is when you have mixtures. And particularly when you start getting into mixtures of three, four, five or more people and or when you have degraded DNA or the DNA mm. is very, very what's called low template. Template just means a low amount of DNA. So when you have either low amounts of DNA or it's degraded in some way in a mixture, this is the perfect combination of just, as we're going to talk about in several studies, and that's what PCAST brings up and says, you know, there were some studies that were done in 2005 and 2013 that have not been published, but show that when it comes to mixtures, DNA has not done so well. And one of those studies, one of the ones that, I just it's absolutely fascinating and it's the study I was referencing when I was asked on the stand which is more reliable. The study is called DNA Mix 13 as in 2013 and anybody can look it up. You can find Mix 05 from 2005 or Mix 13 and that's probably the one that's most relevant because it uses more modern techniques and one of the samples they they had, uh, I think, five different case samples where they gave them just the data and said, hey, take a look at these, and based on your own protocols, how would you interpret these profiles 
in this mixture, which, you know, potentially coming from multiple people, would you include or exclude these individuals who may or may not be a part of this mixture where the test individuals had ground truth? They knew whether or not that person was included or not included in the mixture. And one of the ones that really stands out is case number five, because 74% of the laboratories said one of the individuals was included in the mixture, and they were not one of the donors to the mixture. So it was a 74%, if you will, false inclusion for that, like a false positive practically, where they said this person was part of this mixture and they did not contribute to it. 74%. And... And and I think it was only like 9% that actually excluded the person. So it wasn't even like the other 26% excluded. The other ones were inconclusive. There's too many people in this mixture. We, we, we're not going to say anything. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the data I wanted to explain to the jurors. And that's the study that I was able to finally get out to them and go, hey, it depends. In this one sample, yeah. 74% of them got it wrong. What does that say about DNA? Well, it says that particular DNA sample was incorrect. And I said in the same study, some of the other samples had only a 1% false inclusion rate or even less than that. So it really depends on the quality of that data. So the new paper here we want to just briefly touch on uh, came from uh, Forensic Science International Genetics. Uh, came out here just this year, I think, you know, in June of 2023. It's called Variation in Assessments of Suitability and Number of Contributors for DNA Mixtures uh, by Austin Hicklin, uh, Richitelli, Emmerich, Bever, and Davrin. Uh, so Austin, uh, you know, we've talked about many, many times before, and uh, and you know his contribution to black box studies in these other disciplines. So, you know, over the moon to see him involved now in DNA as well. Right. You know, note that uh, for, even from the title, you can see that this particular paper, we're not yet to paper, the publication talking about accuracy of the conclusion. Here we're looking at assessment for suitability, you know, whether or not this sample is going to move forward and be essentially compared. And if it is, you know, a big part of that is assessing how many contributors are in the data, because that's going to affect the results that come out in the end. And uh, so, you know, what we can really look at here is how consistent are different examiners, different labs, when they assess something as suitable. And then from the accuracy side, how accurate are they when they give the number of contributors present in the sample. And that's, I think, pretty important, too, as well as they're uh, publishing a number of other papers. There's so much variability in DNA processing, and depending on how the laboratory has validated their DNA systems, you know, they may have different thresholds. And there are thresholds that will vary from laboratory to laboratory, and if they don't reach a certain threshold amount of DNA, then they simply don't do anything with it. Yeah, you know, in this paper here, it's uh, they go through and list off you know, a dozen or more uh, different things that they would consider in suitability and number of contributors, and not a single one of these things is used across all 86 labs that were uh, that had participated. You've got, you know, overall different different protocols where they're taking in different data points to make these determinations. And yeah, that explains some of the variation in the results, but it, it also, I mean, it shows that there's variation in the in 
the results because there's variation in the the work. Right. And uh, that's that's an important thing to note. And a and the field needs to recognize and move forward towards you know aligning on best practices to reduce that potential variation. If a layperson is assessing how much trust to put in a result. I mean, this says that, you know, if, if a complex DNA sample goes to laboratory one, they might get one result. If it goes to laboratory two, they might get a completely different result. And if it goes to laboratory three, they might get no result, saying just not enough DNA for us to do anything with. I mean, that kind of variability exists. And we know it exists, and it's showing up here in these data. So, big picture, you're looking at you know, all the different... Uh, examiners and labs that participated in here. The paper says that if two labs following the same standard operating procedures were given the same mixture or the same graph to analyze, because they didn't actually get mixtures in this data, they just got the, uh, the graphs to look at. They agreed on whether this mixture was suitable for comparison 66% of the time. Uh, so even if, if there's variation in procedures, but even if you just look at the ones that were following the same procedures, there is still this variation at the suitability question, basically first step of the process. Oh, and, and one comment too, this, that reminds me of the fingerprint black box study is, you know, they have to give them difficult samples as well for any kind of meaningful interpretation of data. If they were all really, really easy samples and you had 99% sure. agreement here, then you wouldn't have a very interesting study either. And so I imagine, just like the fingerprint black box, they have a caveat saying, you know, we probably erred on the side of caution by giving more difficult samples in general, but still representative of the kinds of difficult samples you might experience in casework. And just as a, a rough comparison, uh, back to the original fingerprint black box study, there you had, again, it's not quite apples to apples, but if you look at the the value for ID uh, decisions were unanimous on 48% of the prints. So again, it's, we're not quite measuring the same thing, but for suitability, this is, you know, when you hear that 66% number, don't think, oh my goodness, you know, that's crazy low. Well, if you look at something similar on the late print side, it's also lower than you would expect. Granted, the number I quoted for latent prints was consensus across everyone who looked at that sample. Uh, and that's not quite what they're talking about here for the DNA number, but you know, just wanted to kind of draw a rough parallel between the two. At least in that first black box study, 25% of those samples were deemed no value, but not all examiners agreed. There was a lot of variation between, well, some examiners yep. thought it maybe could be used for some comparisons, maybe even limited conclusions. And the number said, no, no, that, that's identifiable. It's just there was a lot of variability. So here in this DNA paper, if it's then suitable, then it goes to the next question. How many contributors are in the sample? What's the NOC, the number of contributors? Right. It, it's called the NOC in, in, their, in their lingo. Well, um, there was some disagreement. A little bit. <laughs> here. <laughs> Right. And, and this is actually a pretty important assessment up front because it's going to really yes. affect how they run their statistics. It's a very important interpretation that happens, which I cannot stress enough. And it's what I was trying to stress in the courtroom is there is this view that because DNA has statistics that, well, this is a really objective science 
Yeah, yes, they have statistics. It's how they report effectively these associations. But there's still a lot of interpretation that happens, including one of the most important steps, how many people are in this mixture, which is very important to the calculations. And if that's wrong, then whatever number, no matter how many zeros it has after it in the final the final uh, random match probability that's reported, then that's going to be wrong, right? The, the, right. the number of contributors completely changes the math and you know for every, if whatever that number is and 83 of the 86 labs in this study said that they determined the number of contributors manually not using software so this is a completely subjective uh, determination for a number of contributors the number then after going forward from that you know may be calculated in a more objective manner but it is going to be very dependent on this interpretation and Overall, when they looking at this study, counting it all up, they got the number of, of contributors correct 79% of the time. Right. Meaning 21% of the time, they were incorrect. That, that's that's, that's one that's in a five. Bigger times, number man. than I was expecting. <laughs> it's one in five, right? One in five. I mean, yeah, I know this paper is pretty recent. It wasn't out when I was on the stand. It's why I kind of laugh when I get these questions of. Well, isn't DNA more reliable than fingerprints? Well, um, well, <laughs> it really depends. It depends. What I, one of the brilliant things I think they did here was anticipating challenges or arguments against this data, mm -hmm. right? So I, I believe that, um, you know, they, they saw the, the, uh, the arguments that came out of that data back in 2013 and, um, you know, probably, uh, you know, Austin, I, you know, is definitely aware of, you know, conversations that happened after the 1995 CTS test for Leighton Prince and, you know, where the blame was placed for those errors, mm. uh, where then <laughs> it's, then it's, well, okay, sure. But you know, the, all these differences, you know, that, that we're seeing here, the, the things that they got, um, you know, like the suitability numbers being different. Well, that's just because, you know, we're, we're, they're including some non-US labs. So then they've got the in figure three. Well, if you look at different labs that are using the same SOP, they still disagreed a third of the time. And even if you just limited to different labs using the same SOP, but still in the US, that's still 31% of the time they disagree. Uh, and okay, well then, what if, you know, okay, that's just because of different, um, different labs, you know, even using the same SOP, you know, there's nuances that, you know, slight differences in the SOP. Okay, well, same lab, same SOP, they still disagreed 14% of the time. So really breaking it down like that, it just anticipates and answers, you know, anyone who wants to disregard this data and really forces them to, to look at it and dress it and figure out how we're going to make this better. Yeah, I completely agree. It's one of the things that frustrates me a lot. I mean, there are many things, but that's one of them. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's one that really frustrates me is the go-to answer or response to, and this was a fingerprint thing for so many years, was, uh, well, look at all the other countries that are participating in this study. That's why these error rates are so low, because they're not as good as us Americans. It's... It's so frustrating to kind of see that dismissiveness and blame it on that. And so I, I, I agree with you. I like the anticipation of that and go, well, you know, 
it may not necessarily just be because there are foreigners participating in this study. And then back to the number of contributors. So they, they, had, they had 29 samples total, and they, so they broke that out to show the results. This is in figure four of this paper, showing you know, the percentage of, of um, answers that were dead on exact, and, you know, had the correct number of contributors, the, the percentage where the, uh, the answer was correct, but the examiner gave a range, you know, between two and three contributors. And sure, you got it right, you just gave a range instead of a specific number. And then the percentage that was off by one, you know, in either direction, off by one, by too many, off by one, too few, and then more than uh, two or more and three or more. I, that was actually one of the things I, I enjoyed to see was this, you know, range answer. Mm. And, and maybe it's my own ignorance about DNA is I, I kind of wonder why do they have to give a number? Why can't they give a range of numbers or go, look, if it's three contributors, here's what the statistic would be. If it's four contributors, here's what the statistic would be. If it's three contributors and we're using this, one of the things that lay people may not know about DNA is statistics may change depending on the racial composition profile of the, the knowns that you're looking at and which databases effectively you're, you're using. Although there are some calculations that they can do that just kind of assume you know the, the, the lowest values as well. Uh, to normalize the data, but in general, why why not give a range? And and it's something that I'm finding more even in my own casework. It's something I'm able to do, where if the verifier has one conclusion, I have another, and we're you know not that far up, up, apart. We might give a range of answers. We might say that you know it's moderate to strong mm. support. What? Why does there have to be a single answer? Why can't you explain that there is uncertainty? And that the, our opinion is the true value is somewhere in this range from here to here. Why is that not happening more often? That's a good point. I, I like that because, I, I, I mean, I would agree that sometimes there is more than one right answer or there are situations where a range is appropriate. It may be a, you know, inertia, right? This is just the way we've always done it. And we didn't realize how often we were getting it wrong. So you know, maybe then there's a trend towards that as one of the steps towards you know, making changes based on the data from a study like this. Sure. Okay. But uh, yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a good point. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's some situations, some samples where it's it's obvious the number, right? So the range is two to two. The the, the data is clear uh, enough where that is the appropriate range to to make. I, and I've seen some DNA reports where they do give a table, but it's usually based on the race. Like if, if it's mm. Caucasian, here's the statistic. If it's African American, here's the statistic of it. You know, if it's. I wonder if it's just the the data would just get or the results would just get too complicated, right? So then you've got like if it's two samples and Caucasian, and then I'm not, I'm not sure if there's another calculation assuming that all contributors are unrelated versus if some of them might be related. I, must, I would assume that affects the numbers as well, but I, I That's got good a point. DNA yeah. Expert. Maybe we should have a DNA person on here. We're, we're, we're probably swimming out past the breakers a little bit. <laughs> we probably are, but still it's, it, it's a, uh, it may become, you know, too, too much to where it becomes a little bit meaningless where then it would have to be, you find a strategy to report what, what do you just pick the lowest number of all these, you know, realm of possibilities, you know, or what's the best way to communicate that 
So, Glenn, I have a question here for you on this. Uh, so I know you've, you've been asked questions about this before. You've read all those other papers uh, on DNA, you know, where they, they discussed, you know, different rates of, of incorrect decisions, specifically for the number of c- contributors. What were you expecting the number, the accuracy number to be? from this paper? Yeah, great question. I actually thought it was probably closer to 10% error. I, I would have put mm. it down there. I would have put it probably just under 10%, like in the 8 to 10% range. So when I saw it was 20%, it was, it was much higher than I would have guessed. And, you know, again, that is just with this sample data, sure. which, like you said, is probably difficult or challenging uh, mixtures you know, to begin with. So this isn't necessarily applicable to just average casework, but still a couple of just uh, examples here looking at, uh, you know, they, they've got of those 29 mixtures, three were had a ground truth of two contributors, about 10 or 12 for three, about 10 for four. You know, you'd think that a sample with two would be easier to figure out that there's two hmm. than a sample with four, but that one of the samples with only two contributors they only got it, you know, exactly right 20% of the time. And if you include both the correct exact and correct range, then the accuracy was like 40%. Right. Yeah. I'm actually on a DNA committee and it's funded through NIST and we're writing a big report on DNA. You know, I'm just kind of a general forensic expert and because I was on the fingerprint one, I don't contribute anywhere near, I'm, you know, like 1% of the time compared to what, you know, they're all, but I like to sit and listen to their conversations and what they're discussing. And one of the little things we got to do was do exactly this, some exercises. They gave us some samples and said, all right, here's the rules. Here's how you do this. And we had a couple of hours lecture on, on how, how you interpret these. And then they gave us some samples to take a look at and said, all right, well, start with number of contributors. It is really difficult. Uh, I mean, even the most experienced people were running into the same kind of observations I was as a mm-hmm. layperson, going, how do you know that there is a peak there? Because if there's a peak there, there might be a third person in this sample. But it, if that's yeah. not a peak... Well, but it looks like a peak, but well, okay, if my, my threshold is, you know, 40 RFUs and it's only 30, then maybe I shouldn't be looking at that. But it does say that it suggests that there could be someone. And maybe that's why on this other one, because the, one of the things is the, the sensitivity of the instrument changes depending on the alleles. So you yeah. might have, you know, 15 to 20 different alleles, but some alleles, will easily show up and some alleles don't show up so well and it's it's easy for someone to be in the mixture and showing up earlier in the sample but not later in the sample and there's all these little rules that you learn and it's it's really complex i mean it, it's it's not it's not easy at all and so it's it's understandable to me why you would have some samples like that and it's it, it like you said before eric it just comes down to that might be a particularly difficult sample Exactly. But uh, still, it, it's, you know, a little surprising that that the accuracy was, was so low. It, I guess it just speaks to the possibility of, maybe not on average, but at least for some samples, the, the error rate approaching, uh, you know, this level. And, and then that's got to then, you know, lead to questions about the, uh, the final conclusion, or at least the, uh, the number reported in the final conclusion. And uh, I can't wait to see the next paper when they start looking at 
include exclude uh, decisions yes. uh, from these examiners. <laughs> so very much like fingerprints and some of the other disciplines, you know, they published a series of papers here. And the, the first paper was, well, here are all the different SOPs and protocols. And here's a survey that we did of what people are doing. Not very controversial. Yep. And now look at the number of contributors. You guys vary a bit. I honestly think that they, well, my prediction is it's going to be very similar to the NIST 13 study. Going to be plenty of samples that have false inclusions. And we didn't talk about this in the NIST 13 study, but I'll bring it up now. When you do include someone and go, yeah, okay, they're part of this mixture. And you're right. The other aspect that we haven't even talked about is the range of statistics that they report when they yes. are correct. So that was on the, one of the more fascinating things about the NIST 13 study was when they looked at the statistics being reported, and they, they had three different methods at the time. They had this probability of inclusion, they had a likelihood ratio, and they had a random match probability. And by far in 2013 study, the random match probability was the number one way of reporting, which means it's something along the lines of we would not expect this profile to appear again in an unrelated individual, approximately one in a billion times or a trillion times or whatever that is. By far, that was the most predominant method. But if you include all the methods, the ranges for some of the same samples the very same sample, the same profile, ranged anywhere from log statistics on the order of one in a thousand to one in a septillion, sextillion. <laughs> I, the, literally, for the same sample, it ranged from 10 to the 3 up to 10 to the 23 for the same sample. So if one analyst came in using their method for this, they would say, we wouldn't expect this to appear again one in a thousand times. Pretty, pretty low statistic for, in general for that. Yet another laboratory across the road with the exact same data using a slightly different method would come in and say, well, we wouldn't expect this to appear in a billion Earth lifetimes I, for the same sample. That was, I think, the gobsmack for me. And even using the random match probability, they range from a power of 10, so 1 in 10 billion, maybe right around 1 in a billion, to 1 in the 1 to the 23rd power. So from 1 to the 9, one, 10 to the 9 to the 10 to the 23, for the same sample. That's the kind wow. of thing that I think... We're going to see in the next paper. We're going to see the false inclusions. We're going to see the wide range of statistics. Now, I'm going to, I'm springing something else on you. I didn't mention this to you. It was just something I learned about yesterday. And it's a, it's a paper that came out in Journal of Forensic Sciences. And it's published by Bill Thompson. And we might have mentioned him before. He's got a JD and a PhD. He's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He's a very knowledgeable forensic scientist and very knowledgeable about DNA statistics. And he's been involved in a lot of challenging issues with DNA. But he had a case, and he published this case. And he didn't really give a lot of information about the case. He just said, look, I, I've had this case. And in the case, there were these different alleles. And I ran the alleles through one system, or they were run through one system called StarMix, and the right. same sample was run through another competitor statistical model called True Allele. And he basically said, for the same data, when you ran it through StarMix, you got 
effectively <laughs> um, evidence that was 10 to the 1-ish, if you will, that it was a non-contributor. So basically, basically weak information Neutral. saying it's probably the, the person was not a contributor. But when they ran it through the other software, it ranged anywhere from a million to 16 million times more likely to observe these uh, profile characteristics if the person was a contributor. So it went from uh -huh. basically very weak evidence, not this person, to very strong evidence, it is this person. Using the exact same data, using the exact same case information, and everything except just running it through two different softwares that are out on the market being used by different laboratories. I mean, there, there's no, you know, there's no interpretation here. There's no, there's nothing that goes into it because he just did right. the same and just showed. And the entire paper goes through, well, why are these numbers so radically different? And he goes allele by allele in a very neutral manner, very unbiased and just saying, he's not saying one system is better than the other. Just, he, he says, the article points out effectively the kinds of assumptions and modeling assumptions that happen and why we have mm -hmm. drastically different numbers. That, to me, is also really telling. And I think more things like that are really going to make people look at DNA evidence and go, all right, well, what can, what can we really infer from this? Well, okay, so let me ask this. Do you think that you know, shining a spotlight on these kinds of differences, is the result of that going to be just highlighting that there are differences or do you think that there's going to then be kind of a a look inside as to what's going on and improving the assumptions mm. or fixing whatever is wrong that creates these different things to be more accurate and aligned and more in alignment? Or is that just not possible? That is a great question, Eric. One of the things that in Bill's case that he's talking about is the problem is this was really low template DNA. And it, and it was right. pushing the limits of these systems. Had this been a high template, you know, DNA with lots of information, you might not have gotten this wild variability. But one of these software systems goes way down in the weeds and looks at every peak and every bit of information. And one of these systems has analytical thresholds above which it doesn't really consider the information because it's too unreliable below a certain level. That is an critical assumption about how this software works. And that kind of level of nuance is rarely conveyed to jurors. And they simply mm. get a number but don't really understand, boy, if you would run it through another system that has a completely different assumption about what kinds of data you should use, you'd get a wildly different number from this. And that's what he's pointing out in the paper is the need for careful validation of these programs with realistic samples and the kinds of samples that people are really running through. And this was a real case that was really going through the court system. And he got involved in it and happened to basically compare and contrast these two systems with the same set of data. Right. Well, and I'm sure you heard a month or two ago in the news, they were talking about how they're, they're capturing DNA out of the air. I have not heard this. Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this uh, actually just came out in June of, of 2023, where there are air quality stations measuring you know quality of air, but that these this monitoring network is picking up what they're calling a environmental DNA that is airborne environmental DNA from just 
stuff floating around in the air. And they're starting to use it to determine what animals live nearby in this environment. I, I think you can see that, you know, not that this is you know, related you know, pr precisely to the type of test that we do for forensic DNA. But what my point is, is that the extremely small sample size of this DNA that's just floating around is enough to start looking at, hey, we've got DNA from 85 different insects. And, and it's, uh, you know, they can detect DNA down to, and, and determine what animal it came from down to extremely small sample sizes. Mm. Although I would like to learn more about their accuracy rates, which I guess they won't be doing a black box study on anytime soon. Sure, sure. That's uh, very true. Uh, you know, less of a, um, less, fewer consequences for for this type of kind of just, you know, survey of what's living out here in, in a particular valley. You know, your point being is that, yes, these DNA techniques are very, very sensitive. We The way that DNA can actually find its way into samples as you say, airborne yes. or, or through other ways, doesn't necessarily mean the person even had to contact it at, at, at this point. And when they're running it through even what is considered right now probably the best method, this probabilistic genotyping that is out there, that even when they're running these low template samples, like in Bill Thompson's recent paper, it's showing this wild variability. And that has nothing to do with even analyst interpretation. It's just now assumptions and variability in the software and the yes. methods of the software, which is just another layer on top of that. And so back to the original, it's this kind of reliability and like all these factors of accuracy and variability and wide range of answers and statistics and assumptions and modeling and like oh, it's science is complicated folks and that's what this <laughs> comes down to and eric you said it best yeah it depends yeah i uh <laughs> it's it's crazy how often i'm using that even in my job now of when I get questions coming in of, well, should we do this or this? Or, or, you know, what, what's wrong with this? Well, it depends. So yeah, definitely a, a good initial answer to any question that, that comes at you. Yes. Well, uh, Glenn, uh, I think we've got a, like you'd mentioned earlier, you know, we're going to have to talk about, uh, this uh, firearms decision that, uh, may impact fingerprints at some point down the road too. Indeed. And then I think we've already kind of set ourselves up to talk about the next follow-up paper to this DNA study, because that's going to be super interesting as well. And maybe we even dive deeper into the paper itself. You know, here we just kind of touched on main themes in uh, in this conversation about comparing accuracy from different uh, different disciplines. But I think when they have their new paper, I really do think it's going to be a bombshell. I mean, this was a bombshell enough for them. Again, although I am shocked that attorneys don't really ask them about these studies or even aware of them. But I think there was so much criticism of them and there's so much time from when they finally published them to when they were conducted. They went, well, we don't even mm. use those methods anymore. But having a you know, a more modern, recent paper, something here in 2023, using 2023 methods, I think they have to start facing these questions head on and being a little more transparent about exactly this variability and these interpretations coming. So yeah, I, I do think it's going to be a bit of a bombshell, and I suspect that they are 
with baby steps trying to get this information out there and priming that pump sure. before the big bombshell. That's that's my suspicion, but we'll we'll see. Now, I, I, we're already really long on this episode, but at the risk of asking one more complex question, do you think that at least part of the reason why defense attorneys don't don't use this data regarding DNA is because defense attorneys have this kind of mindset that you know DNA is like our evidence. We don't want to like attack our tool mm. to get exonerations. <laughs> no, I don't uh, think that. Uh, I you don't think, think that. I think for two reasons. I think one, sometimes they use shortcut thinking and they have just made this assumption DNA is mm. a gold standard and that they don't think anything beyond that. And the other one that I routinely encounter is they're not good with numbers and statistics and science. They, and like this is statistics and numbers over their head and no one's necessarily sat down and explained it to them. Again, there are plenty of exceptions. I can think of exceptional sure. attorneys that know this stuff in and out. But I find that attorneys, both prosecutors and defense, deal with DNA evidence more than any other forensic science evidence in the courtroom. The DNA is the one thing they routinely enter in, in, and deal with other than perhaps like toxicology. But sure. in criminal cases, I think DNA is commonly encountered, and yet I don't think they know about these, and I think it's just in their mind over their head and they are woefully trained in how to expose some of these nuances right okay all right well thank you guys all for listening here this week and you know, hopefully as you as we have kind of both said now we've uh, we've determined that if you want to kind of rank or order um uh, forensic science disciplines in terms of accuracy reliability it depends uh so you know we've we've definitely done a service to <laughs> To, to providing that, uh, you know, that, a clear answer there. I guess that's just the way it, uh, the way it is. And I hope Bo is happy. There you go. So if you have any follow-up questions for us, you know, please send them in. Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. So I'll be at the IAI conference in the end of August and at the, um, the IDEMIA Users Conference at the end of September. And it looks like I'll be at the Florida and New England conferences in October. Uh, so if you're going to any one of those, I will see you there. And then, Glenn, do you have any classes coming up? I do. Uh, in October 2023, I will be in Michigan teaching advanced ACV applications, which you can go to ronsmithandassociates.com to register for that course. It's a five-day course on ACEV. That'll be October 9th through the 13th in 2023. And then the following month, uh, November 6th through the 8th, I'll be in the Boston area, about 45 minutes west of Boston, teaching with Brendan Max, defense attorney, and Carrie Hall, fingerprint examiner, teaching a practical answers course, although I think that course is almost full or there might be a waiting list at this point, but go to ronsmithandassociates.com and check that out. And then if you're interested in webinars, I'm still doing those through evolveforensics.com under the banner of Alice White. All right. Well, don't forget to go to our website, doubleloopodcast.com. Got t-shirts we talked about earlier and uh, a bunch of episodes. And then you can uh, listen to us on you know, any of the standard podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. Put in reviews. You know, give us five stars. 
Uh, and then remember, the uh, opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, talk to you guys later. Have a good rest of the week. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.